The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think it's the clarity of prose that we keep coming back to. And sometimes, you know, new readers to Hemingway is like, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. It all seems flat. So that you have to kind of dig deeper. And that's sort of what the project, the one true sentence project is based on, is that sort of take a sentence and then figure out what he's doing with that sentence. And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance, per usual. Ernest Hemingway scholar and author, Professor Mark Chirino, spoke to me about the ethos of the late literary lion, how Hemingway outlived his myth, and his mission to undercover Hem's truest sentence. Dr. Chirino is the host of the popular Hemingway Society-sponsored podcast, One True Podcast. He's also the author of eight books about American literature as writer or editor, And his most recent is One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art with Michael Von Cannon. Described as a selection of the greatest sentences by the master, Ernest Hemingway, selected and examined by contemporary authors, Publishers Weekly called it a revelatory compendium, a rewarding tapestry that readers are likely to come away with a deepened understanding of and even awe at Hemingway's vast talent. Mark serves as an editor for Kent State University Press's Reading Hemingway series and served as a consultant on the film adaptation of Hemingway's Across the River and Into the Trees. He taught creative writing and literature at NYU and now teaches literature at the University of Evansville. In this file, Mark and I discussed why writing at its best is a lonely life, the importance of finding your writing community, how the sun also rises made Hem a literary celebrity, the only thing you have to do as a writer, why each writing project requires new discipline, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, I am honored today to be joined by a special guest. We have the uh, talented and and uh, scholarly 
Professor Mark Torino is joining us today to talk about all things Hemingway. Um, how are you doing today, despite our uh, um, technical difficulties? I am completely fine with that. And it's great to see you, uh, Kelton. It's <laughs> a pleasure to be on the show. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. Um, I really, really am a fan of your work, uh, of course, and the podcast. I can't wait to talk about um, one true sentence. And I feel like that kind of maybe sums up the uh, the spirit of this particular episode because um, not only are we going to be talking about Hemingway's life and work and kind of his ethos, um, but uh, how do you say it? ethos? Ethos? Athos? What no, I think ethos. I ethos. think that, ethos. I'm going to go with your second try. I think that was <laughs> <My great>. second. <laughs> was awesome. Hemingway's ethos. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I think just from a from a, a, a fan's standpoint, you know, it's like it's obviously hard to avoid um, the work and the shadow of uh, mm. the myth and the man, and and um, obviously he was a literary lion. But um, you are. Uh, you know, a literature professor, you, you teach Hemingway, you kind of eat, eat, live, breathe, um, this, (laughs) this man's work. Uh, and you've written, um, like I think eight books now, is that right? Yeah. Give or take. Yeah. Give or take. (laughs) Um, (laughs) no one knows for sure. (laughs) Uh, we think it's eight, but, um, yeah. So I, I want to pick your brain about all things Hemingway and really, to, to kind of sum it up, um, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to kind of dig into ideas like the iceberg principle right. and kind of, um, the economy of word that, that kind of sums up his style and kind of how he changed, um, you know, how we perceive literature. Let's, I don't know, let's go back and talk a little bit about who, who the author was kind of early on, because I always got the feeling that what shaped a lot of his work was just like, you know, I don't know. He found kind of like the essence of how to convey an idea right. or an emotion, um, like really early on in his career. But he was, you know, he was like a struggling freelance journalist early on, right? No, I, I think you positioned it really well. And when you're saying like he tried to convey, try to figure out how to convey the detail that would give the emotion without telling the reader what the emotion was. And Hemingway himself gives examples of what he means by this. So for instance, he goes to a bullfight in the 1920s. So this would be after, you know, he's a a cub journalist, but so he goes to a bullfight in Spain and he witnesses a bullfight that moves him tremendously. And so then he's like, what, how do I describe that the how meaningful the bullfight was to me. And so he's trying to figure it out. And then, and then he goes, you know what it was? It was the whiteness of the bullfighter's leg uh, as compared to the dirt and the blood. And it was like that whiteness of the bone that was like sticking out after the wound. And so then he, he's like, that was it. If I can get that detail, that would be that would be enough for the reader to understand how alive that experience was. And he also says there's another moment where he's talking about um, fishing or landing a fish. And 
you know, Kelton, if you're like me, listening to somebody else describe a fishing adventure is only so interesting, <laughs> unless you're like Captain Ahab or something like that. So he said, well, how do I convey how exciting it is to go deep sea fishing? And then he he says, you know, if I just talk about like the line is so taut that the, the water is bouncing off the line that conveys the kind of tension of the experience. So it was these little details and you yeah. talk to enough writers that you know that writers are looking for that magic detail that's going to convey the essence of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you know, I mean, you've spoken with so many uh, scholars and and like truly, truly talented writers mm. um, about uh, the work and kind of their admiration of of his style and. Um, I talk a little bit about kind of the synthesis of all of that because you, you're kind of boiling down, boiling down this idea of once you sentence, right. and there it's really a deep dive, I think, into kind of um, so many other things. But like, how how is such a, a you know a poetic kind of again that kind of economy of word and that um the spare prose how, how is it so effective and how has it really kind of changed our idea about um what what really makes good writing kind of just yeah so i i think that when the project that we're doing you know the one true sentence project which we often feature on our podcast one true podcast so we're asking people to find that one meaningful sentence to them and then explain why and I think we've been surprised to know, uh, to learn that it's not always those simple Hemingway-esque sentences that you kind of see in Hemingway parody contests and so mm -hmm. forth, mm -hmm. that Hemingway was really at different stages of his life and different stages of his career. He was a different kind of stylist. He was more effusive in certain ways and, and in others. Uh, but of course, he's known sort of quintessentially for that kind of clarity. Um, that kind of, and I think it's the clarity of prose that we keep coming back to. And sometimes, you know, new readers to Hemingway is like, well, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. It, it all seems flat. So that you have to kind of dig deeper. And that's sort of what mm -hmm. the project, the one true sentence project is based on, is that sort of take a sentence and then figure out what he's doing with that sentence. Right. And, and that's, so that's been very exciting. Yeah. I mean, Obviously, the the literary criticism um, comes into it, but it seems to go a little bit deeper than that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, have you had some surprising takeaways given, you know, kind of the, like the vast amount of um, study that you've done of Hemingway and his work? Have you come away with um, some surprises from the project? Well, the I, I would say the, the certainly have come up. Every every interview has some element of surprise. The con the common response and i think you were sort of hinting at this a little bit earlier the common response from all of our guests is that people seem pretty tired of hemingway the persona you know mm. the the sort of the brawling papa figure the stereotypical right. you know loudish alcoholic intolerant cartoonish figure that he's he perpetuated himself uh, in many ways and they just want to get back to the work and if you if you actually read the work, you know, some of his great short stories, some of his great novels, 
it's alive and it's vibrant. And so that is really like the commonality is um, an, in, an intolerance for the Papa persona yeah. and, a, and, a, and a greater focus on, on his work. Yeah, kind of those trappings of the the myth and and obviously yeah, it's distracting, you know. It is. It is distracting and and as we've learned he was a much more complicated character than any of us could have ever I mean tr the truth was tr was actually stranger than fiction um which never never really surprises us. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview, and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. I thought your conversation with uh, Ken Burns mm. and his um, filmmaking uh, cohort was a really good, really amazing conversation. Um, what was it like hanging out with Ken Burns? Yeah, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. So obviously they made that sort of epic three-part series about Hemingway, the documentary called Hemingway. And that's exactly the theme that Burns and Novick were concerned about. They're like, enough with this Hemingway, you know, chest-beating guy. And who was he really? And of course, he was a much more complex, tortured figure that wasn't always, you know, not always admirable. Uh, but but always always interesting. Oh yeah, and and to talk to them, they were so generous with their time, and they were really you know they lent the introduction to our book. So yeah, they were they're wonderfully hmm. wonderfully supportive of the project, and it's a great documentary. You know, your mm -hmm. listeners who are uh, who'd like to listen to different perspectives about Hemingway, not the usual kind of run through of his career. I would totally recommend that documentary. Yeah, I'll drop a link to that and, and I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. But uh it is high on my list of priorities. And uh yeah, it was really cool to to listen to your conversation with them. But uh yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think sometimes looking back, and I wanna I, I wanna go back to one your sentence, but um of course I'll drop a link to the book and I'll drop a link to the to the um your your fantastic podcast, uh One True Podcast, which is uh unsurprisingly um it's it is uh let's see who underwrites it it's the hemingway society just, right yeah no that's right they <laughs> yeah they, they they support it for sure that's so cool yeah it's nice yeah so you're you're a you're a true insider um and i think that's what I, why i was really excited to pick your brain <laughs> um about the the uh this Kelton, the, like, i don't i don't Kelton think i've Sonny. ever been an insider ever for anything so this is <laughs> to, to hear myself described like that is is jarring <laughs> <laughs> well um 
I don't know. I mean, there was something that I wanted to ask you about because you know so much about his life and kind of the evolution of his work. Um, but yeah, maybe go back a little bit and talk a little bit about, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's something about the importance of his early writing community. Right. You know, when he was yep. kind of toiling with uh, maybe a first draft of The Sun Also Rises and um, just writing short stories and obviously doing the journalism piece. Um, and, you know, since then, obviously he's written some, some amazing um, uh, work has been lauded um, and then, you know, went on to fame and, and, you know, obviously a tortured life, but talk about kind of the importance of that early. I mean, some of those early literary friends that like championed his work and like yeah. helped him <laughs> find it's an insane. audience. Yeah. It's crazy. It's insane. And yeah, I, well, I, I'd be interested to hear what, what you're saying your experience of talking to so many writers of how your guests strike the balance between being alone and having yeah. a kind of a, a writing community, because I'm sure there's a balance that works differently for different people. For Hemingway, one of the things, if uh, any familiarity with the biography of Hemingway, uh, I think you'd be really impressed with his talent, but I think you'd be even more impressed with his ability to network it's almost staggering how ambitious he was and his knack for finding the right people at the right time who could help him. So when he was in Chicago, Sherwood Anderson suggests that he goes to Paris. He remember Hemingway was originally planning to go to Italy. Mm. Th think of how modern American literature would be different <laughs> if, if Hemingway and his wife went to Italy instead of Paris. But yeah, so, so Sherwood Dan's like, yeah, everybody's going to Paris if, who wants to be a writer, you should go. And th that was enough for Hemingway. So he goes, he, he gets letters of introduction to Gertrude Stein. So this leads to James Joyce, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Ezra Pound. And so he is right as a un, as a virtually unpublished writer, he is in the middle of Paris in the twenties, against uh, with a who's who of modernism. Mm -hmm. And I, I would also just not to belabor this, but just to say that when when Hemingway wrote "The Sun Also Rises," "The Sun Also Rises" it was published in nineteen twenty six. It was it was bought by Scribner's sight unseen on the recommendation of F. Scott Fitzgerald. So just yeah. imagine you writing your first novel and having F. Scott Fitzgerald be its advocate and selling it, essentially brokering the deal to the the literary publishing house of the day. It's it's just, it's incomprehensible. Right, and not a bad way to break out. No, no, <laughs> it's a good debut <laughs> novel, yeah. yeah. And in, in uh, Kelton, in... Hemingway's Nobel Prize speech, he says, writing at its best is a lonely life. Yeah. And so he's like, he, he stresses that notion of being, you know, waking up, going to the desk and doing it by yourself. And then, but, but, you know, there's also, he was, cannot dispute that he was supported and, you know, uplifted by other members of the community. I don't know, does this, does this dynamic sound familiar mm -hmm. to you in the way that when you're talking to people in the 21st century about writing groups versus <laughs> just leave me alone and let me, you know, let me do my work? For sure. I think that there, as you mentioned, kind of, I, I mean, I would say that, that most writers talk about the need to kind of balance those things. 
um because you can't live in a vacuum right and you know i i think that great literature probably comes from um an ex you know kind of a more almost like emotional exploration of uh what it means to live on this planet and so you 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 would have had to experience something to have something to write exactly. about right yeah um so yeah i mean i think writers struggle with that and i talk i've talked to a lot of writers about what it, the difference between the writer persona and the writer on the podium talking about the writing as opposed to the author who has to uh, sit there alone yes. in a room with their thoughts and somehow you know create prose that will be uh that will move people um but yeah i, I mean go back to the Pulitzer Prize uh speech because um I wanted to, I had pulled something from that that also that um you know it's, it's not a long speech so it's no pretty well, pretty yeah. easy to find um, the Nobel the Nobel Prize speech yeah the Nobel Prize speech excuse me um so uh yeah so at, I think he says at the at the end he just says a writer should write what he has to say and not speak yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe he's addressing that because he you know he wasn't he he didn't really like the like the spotlight, right? Wasn't he kind of like you can um, count you can count the number of public speeches and even interviews that he made on you know one hand. In fact, when if you look at one of the I think one of the interesting things about Ken Burns's documentary is that for somebody who was essentially the most famous writer in the world for let's say the last fifteen or twenty years of his life there's remarkably little footage of him. So you would think that, you know, you think of public writers these days or public writers in the 50s and the 60s, you know, Norman Mailer, who there's or James Baldwin even, you know, you can't get enough. There's so much footage of them. If you were to make, when the document, they made the documentary of James Baldwin, you could, there's many, many hours of footage to choose from. Hemingway, not really. It's very, he was very guarded about that. For sure, which is really interesting, and it again it speaks to his um, complex persona. Your project, once your sentence, springs from a uh, passage from a movable feast, right? Mm, exactly, and. Think yeah talk a little bit about that and how you know how you kind of distilled that sure so a movable feast is hemingway's posthumous memoir of his early years in paris and as he's trying to he's recalling a moment you know whenever he was, he was having trouble getting it going you know i guess we call it sort of writer's block or he's feeling intimidated by whatever he was writing about he says uh he, he remembers telling himself, do not worry, you've done this before, you'll do it again. All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. And, you know, think about that, about that, about that idea. It's like, oh, you got a blank page or you're stuck. But if you reduce the enormity of the, pro of the project to a single next sentence, that is authentic, that is resonant, that will then lead to the sentence after that, and then after that. And then it will have a cascading effect, and it will lead to a 
robust piece of work. And that was at least Hemingway's strategy, or that's how Hemingway articulated it in a movable feast. And that led to this, this enormous project, which is, <laughs> which is saying, okay, so of all the thousands and thousands of sentences that <laughs> Hemingway ever wrote, pick one that you think is particularly, I don't know, poignant, remarkable, Hemingway-esque, moving, memorable, and explain why. And that, so that has been the substance of several of our interviews, and that's the substance of our book. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting that he didn't, you know, he didn't like Stephen King, for instance, write, mm. um, you know, write and really write a, a, a book about how to write, uh, how, you know, or how, right. how, how to, yeah. how to do it. Um, but there, he did leave a lot of advice behind. Exactly. I thought, um, that, uh, let's see, there was, I just had grabbed, um, a 1935 article in Esquire, a titled monologue to the maestro, <laughs> a high seas letter. Yeah. He has some advice to a young writer and said, um, and this is also, this is also, I think advice you hear as a, as, <laughs> as a young scribe too, you, you, you know, it's like, um, apocrypha or something like that, but he really did say, the best way uh, is always to stop when you're going good yes, and when you right. know what will happen next. And if you do that every day, when you're writing a novel, you'll never be stuck. That's the most valuable thing I can tell you. So try to remember it. Um, I think he relied really on some neuro, neuroscience um, when he said also to not think about uh, the yeah, work right. when you're not right, when you're not sitting and writing, to kind of let your subconscious do some of the work. That's exactly right. He definitely did that. And where he would, uh, he had this, he had this uh, routine for a long time. I can't say he did this all the time, but he had a routine for a long time where he'd wake up really early and go to work and he'd work for several hours. And then he'd go to lunch, start drinking, fishing, hunting, being with friends and living. And then he would let the, you know, he'd let the uh, he'd let the thoughts and the inspiration just slowly, as you're saying, subconsciously come back. And I don't know if he would ever articulate it in the conscious, subconscious, you know, mm -hmm. uh, dichotomy in that way. But that's certainly what he was doing, where he'd say, okay, so focus on writing and then just don't worry about it. Don't like keep, um, sort of obsessing like, about it. Yeah. yeah. Stop, stop straining it. It'll, it'll come. <laughs> It'll come right. if if you do the living, the writing will come on on its own. He tells a story about when he's writing a farewell to arms, how he remembers that what he would do is he'd read the entire novel up until where he left off. Yeah. And then he and then he'd continue. Imagine doing that every morning. How uh. <laughs> deep into that world you'd be, you know, you'd be in that army and in Italy. Yeah. Uh it's, it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, that's right. He said. The best way is to read it all every day from the start, <laughs> correcting as you go along, and then go on from where you stopped the day before. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that he um, wrote in pencil. Um, he has uh, pretty interesting handwriting. It kind of slants, doesn't it? It does, yes. And <laughs> also idiosyncratic spelling, right? Uh, that too. And he, what he did was, as he went a little bit uh, longer, like later in his career, he was one of the novels that I have spent a lot of time with is called Across the River and Into the Trees, which is 1950. Mm -hmm. It's one of his his minor works. 
but he was obsessive about word count. Mm -hmm. So he would be, he'd get, uh, I wrote 641 words and then he'd write it down on a, in a notebook. And then every letter of that day, hi guys, how you doing? I wrote 641 words today. And then he'd write somebody else. I wrote 600. He was like, it was, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know any, I mean, in your, the writers that you talk to, are they yeah. that like, sometimes they'll go, oh, my goal is a thousand words a day. My goal is a 500 yeah. words a day, whatever. He was, he was really obsessive about like to an alarming extent yeah. that he was so concerned. Well, about. that's interesting because back then, you know, obviously he didn't have access to the internet and no, um, right. he, he was writing a lot of letters as opposed to, you know, like chatting yes. with people uh, on text or like a social media. Um, so it sounds like a, a form of accountability. And I do hear a lot of yeah, writers that's uh, talk about, you know, the importance of accountability and having those, those um peers that can do you can do that with um but then yeah do you, you know i mean there are just pantsers and there are plotters and you know obviously there's different there are different types of stylists and and everyone kind of, everyone comes out of differently is what i've learned i don't i don't think anybody um you know besides the uh super super diehard um you know uh three novel a year writers are really <laughs> right. like you know, uh, are, are most are just like, they're like, whatever works for you, you know, exactly. you got you to find your pace, your style. I mean, you know, you, you've, you've written, um, extensively, uh, you have had deadlines and you've worked, yep. um, uh, for publishers. What, what, uh, how do you, what do you find? Let's talk about your, your, uh, just for a minute, like what, well, what, what have you found that works best for so you? The, the, the frustrating thing in my work uh, routine is that oftentimes a different project, each different project requires a different workflow. And so what worked the last book or the last article or project may not work this time. And mm. I wish I could tell you, I, I have a feeling I'm the only person that happens to where you kind of have to relearn how to do it with each project. And to me, that's been really frustrating and, and you know, maddening. Of course, um, your point about uh, accountability is fantastic. This is one of the reasons why I love having a collaborator, a good collaborator, and my co-editor of On One True Sentence and my uh, co-creator of One True Podcast is Michael Von Cannon, and he and I keep each other honest. And we, you know, it's having a, a really good, I mean, of course, you can't do this with a novel that you're writing by yourself, but doing this kind of project with somebody who you enjoy working with, there's just nothing better than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think having a peer or a peer group, I mean, even just one um, right. writer friend that can that you can, uh, you know, even just your beta reader, um, that's someone, right. someone that you trust their opinion. Obviously you need multiple opinions as a, as an author. Um, but I think early on getting the confidence to, um, lean on somebody, absolutely a collaborator, a friend, even a spouse can do that. I, I, I don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> there's this great, I, there's great, um, moment after Hemingway finishes a farewell to arms, he sends it off to Fitzgerald and that's a good first reader, right? Fit, Fitzgerald. Yeah, and so, bad. yeah. So Fitzgerald, who was really instrumental in editing the sun also rises, by the way, uh, like 
seriously, yeah. he was the most important editor in The Sun Also Rises. But so Fitzgerald, uh, so Hemingway was like, well, here you go. Uh, three years later, here's a, a farewell to arms. And Heming and Fitzgerald writes back a whole bunch of criticism and and then says, oh, well, this, this part's great. This part can be cut. This is unnecessary. And he really, I mean, you ask the guy to edit it, he edited it. You know, he he certainly gave his his opinions. And Hemingway, so and finally Fitzgerald ends his long exegesis with um, a fine book it is or something or a lovely book it is. And Hemingway <laughs> writes, kiss my ass. <laughs> I love that. And so he didn't take one piece of advice that, that <laughs> if things had changed in three years, you know, in 1926, Amazing. Fitzgerald was fresh off Gatsby. He had a lot more maybe. Uh, Hemingway was was a rookie back then, so Hemingway had a lot more deference to Fitzgerald. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Fitz was no slouch. Does he? Did he go by Fitz? You think? I can't yes. Remember. Yeah. Okay. I would never call him that, but no. I, th I think if you knew him, you could call him Fitz. Yeah. yeah if you were like hanging out, having beers. Yeah, like um, Hem, Hem, and Fitz. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, um, yeah, if you could, uh, if you could go back or, you know, you don't have to go back, um, just out of curiosity, uh, if you could have dinner with any author from any mm. era, um, to your oh. favorite, favorite spot in the world or, or theirs, um, who would you take? Where would you take them? You could take more than one. I've had authors take, you know, like half a dozen crazy. Wow. Crazy. What? Things. So I'll just say the first three people that come to mind because cool. it's four like a nice four would sound would sound good yeah four so the first person is bob dylan uh if bob dylan was were, were in the mood to hang out with me <laughs> if he weren't in the mood i i would i would just leave him alone but if he was up for it let's do let's go bob dylan uh and i'm really looking forward to that new book of his which is mm. uh the philosophy of modern song i think that's coming out in the next week or so a couple oh, of weeks wow. very okay. excited about that you can you agree that he's an author right that's am i am i yes. flouting your question okay he won the nobel for heaven's sake uh the second guy would be shakespeare and uh if he exists i would like mm -hmm. him to come to dinner with me i think that would be fun uh i would have many questions and i know he would have many answers and the la i think the third guy who come who comes to mind is I mean, I'm also reticent to say this, but I, it would be Henri Bergson, the uh, French writer. Hmm. French. I'm not sure he can speak English, which would make it a really awkward <laughs> dinner. I, I can't speak French, but if, I don't know, you'd figure either Dylan or Shakespeare could translate. He is a great, amazing writer. And I would, I uh, especially around that, I really love literary modernism hmm. and a, mm -hmm. a lot of Bergson's philosophy um, influenced literary modernism. So those would be my three. Are those common? Are those common choices in when you when you've asked the question? I've never heard um, the first or the third. Oh, um, but uh, Shakespeare, I have heard a couple times, and we okay. always um, joke whether how many people that would be. I, and I I don't ah. have an opinion one way or the other. <laughs> it um, could be zero, or it could be more than <laughs> it could be more than one. Right? I always had a had a sneaking suspicion that there was a there, there was kind of like a uh i don't know like a society that, that got together and kind of created this 
mythos, but I have no idea. I, honestly, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, uh, the idea that it was more than one person. Um, the, whole, the whole group is welcome. That's, you know, <laughs> you know me. I have a, I have a very Italian uh, ethos about this. Everybody's okay, welcome. Ethos, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, so we're hanging out with Bob Dylan. I mean, um, have you read Bob Dylan's uh, autobiography? Chronicle? Chronicle, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I did. I thought that was a great book. Quirky and fascinating, I thought. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. His word choice, I think, is so. You, it's only Dylan could say certain things. And, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I, I love his music. I love his singing. And I love the. I like uh, Chronicle too. And I can imagine, like I said, listening to him or reading him writing a book about the music that he grew up with and what he thinks. I, I think that's great. Yeah. You talk about Kelton, you talk about somebody who's at output. I mean, he's been oh my gosh. churning out this work. I would love to know what his system is. Yeah. Yeah, he's invited on the show. He's an open invitation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he has time to hang out here on and, this. And if he has a one true sentence, you know, I would oh, man. I mean, he's he's welcome. Yeah. Can you imagine? Um, well, uh, I want to wrap up um with i don't know your advice to to writers because you know you've you've studied this literary celebrity and, and mm -hmm. all of his trappings and his amazing output um i don't know i'm sure you have some pearl of wisdom for writers so i wouldn't <laughs> aside from I, your work <laughs> i wouldn't categorize it as advice but let's say something to think about and uh, and through Hemingway, I can I can sort of offer this idea to think about. And so the thing that I would leave everybody with is that Hemingway's, I think, genius was at his best. He knew what to say, what to what to leave out, and what to select to state. Do you see what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. what to be explicit about and what to be implicit about. I can give you one. Very short example, if I have time, Kelton. So yes, there's there's a great short story called The Killers, uh, which is a 1927 collection, uh, Men Without Women. In this short story, uh, this Nick Adams short story, he has been kept uh, hostage in a diner. Finally, he's released. And after he's been released, the sentence that Hemingway writes is, he had never had a towel in his mouth before. And that has got to be one of the weirdest sentences in the history of American literature, right? He had mm. never had a towel in his mouth. Who says things like that? That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't even mean anything, of course. But so what Hemingway is telling you is that instead of saying he had never been held hostage before, he had never mm. known evil before, his innocence had been shattered. You know, think of the ways a bad writer would convey that. Hemingway is attuned to the sensory the specific, the physical, the actual. So he says something really uh, declarative, like he had never had a towel in his mouth before. And any attentive reader is going to say, wow, that's what he was feeling in the during the crisis of the moment. But what did it really mean emotionally or psychically, you know, and, and so forth? So back to your question, I would just... 
remind your writers, which I'm sure they already know, is that there is that really subtle, fragile dynamic between saying too much, not saying enough. But then there are these moments when you strike just the right balance and then your work comes alive. It shimmers because you've just hit that right, that right chord. And that was Hemingway at his best. And that's, that's art at its best. Hmm. Well put. Um, I could pick your brain all day. I'd love to have you back in the future um, to talk more about uh, whatever you want. We could, uh, and if, if Dylan comes on, I'll do definitely have you as a, do you promise? As a Let's do it. Kick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, anytime. I love talking with you about <laughs> writing and I love your podcast. Thank you so much. I'm a fan of your podcast as well. I've been digging into the archives and I'm really, really getting a lot out of it. And of course, I'll point at um, the book. I'll point out the podcast. Is there anywhere else you want to connect with listeners? No, if, uh, those two would be fantastic. And, uh, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys the book and happy listening. Mark, Professor Chirino, it has been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully talk to you in the future once we get um, Dylan's people on the <laughs> line. Anytime. It, it, could, <laughs> it could even be before then. Looking forward to it, Kelton. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.